Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Many years ago when I was back in school, there was one incident where I saw a student hit a teacher and I was, at that time, I, I was stunned. I couldn't believe that somebody would hit a teacher. It just seems so unbelievably, I don't even know what the word is. Uh, maybe it was an authority thing. I don't know. Maybe I was taught. I don't know. But we're looking at numbers now that we, the story in the spectator from the other day in the 22, 23 school year for the Hamilton Wentworth district school board, 3,869 reports of violence. And that apparently is not the full number because many people, many teachers were told don't bother reporting. That is, to me, an absolutely stunning number. Paul Bennett is the director and lead researcher with the Schoolhouse Institute. He is Canada's leading educational expert. Paul, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for bringing me back on again, Scott. Well, th- this this one, when I when I saw these numbers, and again, maybe it was a different time, and maybe I was someone who was more attuned to authority. I, I don't know what, Paul, but the idea that Thirty more than three thousand cases of violence against teachers and educational assistants in one school board is stunning to me. It's kind of outrageous, but the schools are out of control, and in some cases they're in near chaos. And we know now that the pattern is emerging. For example, there are three hot spots in Ontario: London South, not only the high school but all of the feeder schools; York Memorial in Toronto, where the merger of two schools has caused chaos. Uh, Tonkin Road Middle School in Applewood Heights in Peel has uh, significant problems. And now we have the report on the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Can I make a clarification? Sure. Report uh, in the spectator on the Hamilton-Wentworth actually related to about half the problem because it only refers to incidents of violence directed at COPE members who are essentially educational assistants. And it also suggests that um, a lot of of the issues aren't being reported. So if we were to take a fuller study and the full dimension of violence in schools involves, uh, I I would say, violence uh, directed at teachers, at education assistants, and then student on student. We don't have any data on the amount of violence and interplay between students themselves. It's only reported because there are laws and protections in place for staff. Okay, so, and thank you. I mean, because it it does really, I mean, it makes it much, much worse when you you realize that's the case. So why is this, I mean, maybe not why is this happening. I don't know if we know the answer to why is this happening. Why is this being allowed to happen? And I think the school board and the schools would say, we're not allowing it to happen. It just happens. But I don't believe you can get to this many cases without some decisions or some policies being put in place that are not zero, zero, uh, you know, that that allow it in some way. How, How do we get to this point? Well, we've abandoned zero tolerance policies. They were abandoned in April of 2007 and a well-intentioned effort to try to reduce the number of suspensions and expulsions that adversely affected those kids who were from marginalized communities. That was the rationale. It was introduced by a former premier uh, who was then education minister, Kathleen Wynne. It was supported by Deputy Minister Ben Levin. And it was all directed at trying to reduce the incidence of uh, discrimination against those minorities. 
Now, what the situation is now is far, far beyond anything that we ever imagined. We have positive behavior supports as a disciplinary approach. We've significantly reduced the use of deterrence. We've kind of resorted to providing um, rewards for good behavior and de-emphasizing uh, response to violence using deterrence. So um, what we've got is a, an explosion in uh, violence at two levels, uh, which is physical violence directed at teachers and at other fellow students, which is difficult to control. You also have psychological forms of violence, which are harassment, bullying, and cyberbullying. And then the other thing that I think the, the report that you're citing is, is the dangerous environment in which uh, education uh, assistants work, serving the most severely challenged and the most difficult children in the school system. Um, when you think that there were, uh, you know, 3,869 reports of violence in 2022-23 in the Hamilton-Wentworth system, keep in mind that's really just directed at EPAs working with a selected group of kids in special learning situations for the most part. So um, I think this, the situation is, is this, and let me be succinct. The existing approach to student behavior and conduct is not working and it needs to be thoroughly re-examined. It's not as simple as saying we're gonna uh, reduce uh, the number of incidents, we're gonna clamp down. The whole approach needs to be reviewed and I would argue that student behavior and student conduct is a huge priority and it's time that we addressed it head on. Okay, there's two different things then, and you've alluded to this, there's two different things we have to look at. And and I think they are very different scenarios. If you're talking about kids who are these acts of violence on EAs, educational assistants who are working with kids who may have special needs or other challenges, that is to me a different scenario than just a kid who is for lack of a better word, you know, normal and who acts out. What, what do you do with the kids who have these challenges who may not be, they're certainly in a lot of cases, in most cases, in almost all cases probably, aren't doing this intentionally to be difficult. It, it's a challenge they have. What do you do with that? Well, the elephant in the classroom is inclusion. Inclusion is our theory of approach, which is to bring everyone into a regular classroom as much as possible on the assumption that they'll do better and that they'll have proper supports. But what we've got, particularly in Hamilton-Wentworth, is when half of the positions for educational assistance aren't filled or they're, they're, uh, they're empty or there's a lot of absenteeism, that whole system breaks down. So you begin, you have to begin to wonder, you know, have we got a system that is in place that we can't support with those particular staff resources we need? Now, I've got to say, I'm a bit critical of, you know, the knee-jerk reaction of, say, COPE, that's the uh, Union for Education Workers. And the same, I'm quite critical of, say, the OSSTF and the ETFO, because I think they keep going back to the same thing. We want more resources. We want more well, that's of this. Always. We want, and they don't really address, in my view, what the fundamental problem is, which is student behavior and student um, and and a way to foster and develop uh, a new uh, approach to uh, overseeing students. And it's not 
behavior management. It's a student uh, student behavior that encourages good behavior, re re significantly reduces the incidence of misbehavior and school disruptions. This is not exactly, Paul, where I was going to go with this, but I, I'm going to ask you this since I've got you and since you bring it up and about the unions. I've long thought that when it comes to education, we always hear the union saying we need more of this, we need more teachers, more of this, more of that. What would happen if the government said to the school boards, you know what, we're going to let the unions, here's the money we've got, here's the entire funding for education, unions, you're always pointing to these things that are wrong, this year you're in charge, you fix it. What do you think would happen if it was put in the laps of the unions to make these fixes? Do you think they would fix it? No, I think they probably would realize, looking at it with all the data that they'd have access to, that that's not really the solution. Um, but in the case of Hamilton Wentworth, there are problems there uh, actually staffing the classrooms with the educational support workers. So you could argue there that a temporary fix would be let's get recruit and, but I have this feeling that it's all band-aiding the problem. Um, so you recruit a whole bunch of new resource workers and educational support workers, and then they run into the same issues. They're going to uh, quit at the end of the year. They're going to um, take leave. They're going to end up on compensation. So I don't think you're any further ahead. So I don't get the uh, the approach that let's just do more of the same. I think we need to re-examine that entire approach. Wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. That is Paul Bennett, who is the director and lead researcher with the Schoolhouse Institute. We always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me ring in a man who is known yeah, somewhat for his morning radio show and, you know, somewhat for hosting the fifth quarter, but mostly for his commentary on music. Uh, that is Rick Zamperin. Sir, how are you? I'm fantastic. Do you mind if I hazard a guess on the biggest bird on the planet? Because I, I, I have a theory here, and I'm not sure if this is even considered in the equation. You're going to say that a Ticat fan's middle finger if they lose tonight. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, actually, metaphorically, metaphorically the Ticat's middle finger there against the Argonauts, because as, <laughs> as we know, this is, this is apropos. This is what has to be done. By the way, before we get into that, what was the greatest concert Rick Zamperin ever saw? Well, bar, uh, hands down, I mean, this isn't even a close conversation. It was KISS, Budweiser Gardens, London, Ontario, 2016, I think it was. Um, my good friend uh, Andy Zimmerman, who uh, used to work at 900 CHML back in the day, uh, he and I went, and uh, we just had an awesome time. It nice. was I think it was their previous farewell tour. Now they're on mm, another one. But yes. Yeah, it was a great show. Uh, one, one of my, um, I may have talked about this on the air before. If I have, I apologize to people who heard this story. But Rick, I have a policy that on vacation, I always take a few books on my Kobo and I, you know, do some reading. But my policy is I do enough reading all the rest of the time. Any book I take cannot, by, by rote, by rule, by law, any book I take can do nothing to enhance my intellect. It can only <laughs> be lighthearted brain gray matter killing stuff. And I mentioned this because one of the books I read on a trip a while back was the history of kiss. And you know what? It was great. It was a great book. I mean, I did learn a few things which probably defeated the, uh, the rule. My, my favorite part about this was when Gene Simmons was first learning to blow fire. 
he hadn't quite got the whole thing down yet. And one of their first concerts was in a hotel ballroom and he missed and lit the ceiling on fire and they had to evacuate the building. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that would have been a great one. I, the, the closest I saw, uh, and I think it was there, uh, meatloaf, which was, you know, the loaf. You can't, uh, anyway, uh, you know, and for some people, it would have been the Arkells at the Grey Cup last year, which brings mm-hmm. us back to uh, to the Ticats. So here, here's the thing. Ticats play tonight at 9. They're in Edmonton against the 0-5 and, and truly horrific Edmonton Elks, who uh, I know that their previous name was politically incorrect in 2023, but my goodness, ever since they changed their name, they have just sucked. They need to go back, if only to get a win. But... If the Ticats lose tonight, and I don't see how it's almost possible, but what is the level of Ticat fans' rage if this is the game they lose? It would be off the charts. I mean, it would be, I would call Dave Woodard and say, listen, Dave, I'm going to come in with you to host this mm. show tonight because it's going to be so rabid. It would be, it would be insane because this is, this is a team that is expected to go, and I'm talking about the Ticats, expected to go to the Grey Cup. And, and, you know, that maybe mindset or expectation may have dimmed over the first four or five weeks of the season, but still they're hosting the game. They went relatively all in in the offseason. This is a team that should be, at the end of the day, playing in the last game of the, of the playoffs, let alone the season. For, for Edmonton's sake, I mean, they not only have are, are they 0-5, and not only have they lost 19 consecutive games at home. The last time they won at Commonwealth Stadium was pre-pandemic. Um, they're, they're not a very good team. I mean, you look at the statistics, and, and you look at the team on the field, and they match. I mean, this is a team that averages 12 points a game on offense. Yeah. And, and they've gotten some defensive, uh, you know, touchdowns this season, so... They don't have Eugene Lewis, who is arguably the best receiver in the game. So their number one weapon, their biggest threat, is not going to be on the field. You know, Taylor Cornelius, I don't think, is a quality quarterback. Certainly nowhere near the elite level status you need to be to guide a team deep in the playoffs. This Edmonton team is 0 for 19 at home for a good reason. They're not very good. The Ticats should go into Edmonton tonight and get the W. That said, and, and I, I, they, they kind of have to. I mean, they, they, this Edmonton is so bad that I just can't picture it not happening. That said, are you the Ticats got their first win uh, last week or just a few days ago? Saturday. Are you with what you saw? Are you a believer that the corner has been turned and everything has been figured out? Um, no, not yet. I'm, I'm not all in on, you know, this team has figured it out because, uh, let's call a spade a spade. They beat Ottawa, who was down the quarterback, what, one, two, three, four on the depth chart, uh, who was making his first, you know, appearance in the CFL and nearly led the team to a game-tying touchdown or potentially game-tying touchdown with a two-point conversion. And, you know, even with, the Ticats uh, finally getting some turnovers in their first three interceptions of the season uh, and their defense playing their best game of the year. They still barely beat a pretty bad Ottawa team with, again, their fourth string quarterback. So until I see them beat a team like Toronto that they're going to play next week or a team like Winnipeg or BC or one of the upper echelon, you know, quote unquote, upper echelon teams in this league, I'm not throwing all my chips in the middle to say, all right, this Ticats team is for real. I got to see it against some of the 
uh, elite teams in this league. Well, yeah, and and I mean, let's Edmonton lost last week to Saskatchewan, but only because of how do we even describe the boneheadedness of the way? I mean, it, for those who didn't see it or didn't hear about it, uh, I'll let you explain how Edmonton managed to lose that game. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 11-3 uh, with about a minute and change. For left. Edmonton. For Edmonton. Yeah. Fourth quarter, Saskatchewan's driving. They get a touchdown. It's now uh, 11-9. Saskatchewan, this is with a minute and four seconds to go. Saskatchewan then gets the two-point conversion. People in Mosaic Stadium going crazy. It's it's 11-11. And the ensuing kickoff, and again, there's a minute left to go in the game. Uh, Saskatchewan kicks the ball off. It sails way over the head of the Edmonton Eskimos player, who is, or the Elks player, pardon me, uh, who is on the 20, 25, 30-yard line. And I'm not sure why that player was even in that area. But that's, that's one big error. Number two... He kind of nonchalantly gets back into the end zone where the ball finally ends up. And, you know, once he gets there, he thinks, the only thing I can do is kneel. And I'm not sure if he knew that if he kneels in the end zone, it's not a touchback like it is in the National Football League. It's a one-point single. And so Saskatchewan wins the game 12-11. Uh, to 11. And one of the most bizarre, you know, completely CFL type of endings you're ever going to see. That's the, that's the way things are going with Edmonton. I mean, yeah. they, they played a pretty good game against Saskatchewan. They, you could have said they deserve to win that game, um, but they didn't. They're, they're finding ways to lose. I have, uh, well, let's talk about this for a second. The Rouge, so that way to lose on a Rouge, I, I'm not going to take issue with the Rouge in that particular case, the single point, because that was just a brain fart that that, you know, player, someone either, he, he was, a, the story was that he's a new arrival, a new import player, and clearly someone had not told him, by the way, don't let this happen. Some coach blew it. But nonetheless, that I, I'm not going to take issue with because that it was preventable. But this has started a whole new debate, Rick, last over the last week about whether the Rouge is good or bad, whether a team should ever be able to lose a game on the Rouge. I, you know, I don't want to be accused of being pro-NFL over the CFL, but I, I just can't stand the thought of a team losing a game by a missed field goal or a, or a kickoff going into the end zone. I, or, where are you on the Rouge at this point? Yeah, I'm. I I know it's pure Canadian and it's the CFL, and I'm you know more or less I am a purist when it comes to sports. But you know, p- picture this: it's the Grey Cup, it's uh, you know thirty to thirty tie, and uh, you know Hamilton is on the eight yard line, and it's third and two, and do they go for it, or do they go for the field goal? Of course, you're going to go for the field goal. It's a short chip shot, but you know Mark Leggio, who's had a fantastic season, misses the field goal. But the ball, because you're so close to the end zone, goes out of bounds. So you get a single. Time winds off the clock, and you you have won the Grey Cup 31 to 30 on on an error. And I just think you know it's it. We don't see it often in in that kind of sense. But from time to time, you see missed field goals, and teams are awarded one point here, one point there. And at the end of the day, it adds up. But I, I, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. I understand it's been in the rule book for decades, mm-hmm. but I would. I would be okay with eliminating it, really. I mean, the punt single is a different kind of uh, different kind of rule, although you could be in the same kind of category. You're at the 45-yard line, and the wind is not really participating. It's a side wind. You don't think you're going to get a field goal. You can punt it in the end zone and win this great cup last second with a roo single. I mean, it's 
that I can stomach a little bit more because, you know, punting the ball in the end zone and the other team, if they can't take it out, at least there's a little bit of excitement with that. Missing a field goal and, and getting rewarded for it seems to be asked backwards. The, the argument that has always been presented whenever this debate has started, the argument always presented is it's not rewarding failure, because that's always the argument that you and I and others say, it's fail- but it's not rewarding failure, it's rewarding field position. You have got yourself into a position where you can put the ball into the end zone, and therefore, even if it's a missed field goal, you're getting rewarded for the field position that you have. Here's the problem I have with that, Rick. We don't give a single point for a long pass that goes and a re- hits a receiver in the hand, but he doesn't catch it. Mm-hmm. If we can kick a ball into the end zone that stays there, why can we not have a quarterback just heave a ball by arm into the end zone and get a single point for it? Well, and here, here's the other thing, too. I mean, uh, in a missed field goal, when the ball hits the post, you don't get anything. It's a dead ball. So, yeah. I mean, the field position kind of argument doesn't really hold any weight if you've made it to the 30 and you think, okay, I'm, we'll just kick a field goal here because time's winding down in the first half or whatever the case is. You hit the bar, that's it. You don't get you don't get bupkis. So uh, you know if they're going to make it a rouge for a missed field goal, make it for a missed field goal. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the other thing that someone brought up this week, and I had never thought about this, but it was on social media in this debate that started because of this Edmonton Saskatchewan game is. If I intercept a ball, so, okay, the ball is kicked into the end zone and I take a knee, so I go down in the end zone, I am surrendering a point. But if I intercept a pass in my own end zone and go down, why am I not surrendering a point? Mm-hmm. It's just, there. It, all of a sudden, as you get into this, there are more and more things that you go, oh, wait a second, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the interception one, I can, I can understand why you wouldn't get a point. You know, you've made... By all accounts, an exceptional defensive play. So the defense should get the reward in that case. So I guess that's why they don't, they wouldn't have received a point in that regard. But yeah, it makes sense. You've, you know, you've kneeled in your own end zone. That should be the rule. But, you know, with different circumstances come, I guess, different rules. Uh, this is a uh, back to the Ticats. And uh, this week, I'd, I'd be shocked if uh, the Ticats end up winning or losing by a rouge. Although, you know, again, it happened once. So why not? But uh, this is also, it would seem, a week. Not only do you have the fact that your opponent stinks tonight, uh, it's not this week, tonight, uh, that your opponent is 0 and 5. But when you look at who else in your division is playing, uh, Toronto and Montreal, I expect Toronto going to win that game. That keeps Montreal close to you if you can win and Ottawa is playing Winnipeg. I fully expect this weekend that Winnipeg is going to clobber Ottawa. Uh, this is one of those games that you look at on the schedule and you say, uh, considering what the other opponents and our other teams in our division are doing, this is one we can't give away. You, you can't give this one away. This is the one to claw back and now you're right back in the middle of it. 100%. Yeah, this is, this is the make hay week because you're playing what everyone, I, I think, on the planet agrees with, it's a lesser opponent. Um, interestingly enough, though, four out of the six so-called CFL experts, the guys who pick week in and week out, four out of the six pick the Elks to win tonight. Really? Uh, which is interesting. But, yeah, I mean, the, the schedule really has set up nicely for the Cats, again, if they take care of business tonight, because Toronto should win against Montreal, even though that game is in Montreal. And they always kind of play you know, a little bit better at home. And I don't see Ottawa have any chance beating, you know, the, the three-time Grey Cup participants from, from the Blue Bombers. No. But 
if Hamilton doesn't win tonight, you throw all the scenarios in there. You know, they've just lost to a team that's lost 19 in a row, and and a loss tonight would tie the all-time North American record in pro sports for futility at home. The 53 St. Louis Browns, who aren't even around anymore, hold a record of 20 straight home losses. But yeah, you you lose, you know, based on that. Edmonton's 0-5, a terrible unit. They can't score points, and you lose. And then next week you're playing Toronto. I I would not want to be around uh, Tim Hortons Field with the pitchforks and the torches. Yeah, everybody angry. The one, so those people, those experts that you're citing, the one thing I would point at to because I I don't agree with them, but the one thing I could wrap my head around as to why. this, you know, they always talk about a trap game. You've got Toronto next, your arch rival, a team that's really looked very good. Could Hamilton possibly on a short week be looking ahead and take this one? I, I don't think that Hamilton's a team in a position to be taking anybody for granted, but could, could that happen? I, I mean, it could. It's, it, I, I think it has. We don't really know, you know, the, the mental mind frame, you know, when you're, you know, preparing for a game. I think, you know, players get get their playbook. They know the scheme. They've been practicing what they're going to run in the game all week. I don't really think that enough players think about, oh, you know, what after, you know, after we beat Edmonton, we got to, you know, take care of business against Toronto. I think they are, you know, honest to God, focused on each and every game. But, you know, if things are going awry uh, or things are going really well, they might take their mind, you know, off the prize, their eyes off the prize. Uh, I don't get that sense as they're preparing for each and every week. So there might be a few, and there might be some, you know, inexperienced CFL players who are thinking and looking ahead. But I think the majority don't don't do that. I mean, these are these are professional players. Yes, it, it's human to think about you know the white ups down the road, but I think starting the season one and three, I, I think they're they're going to be focused on tonight. Well. Almost, well, literally every other time there is a fifth quarter after a Ticat game here on CHML, the man I'm talking to, Rick Zamperin, would be hosting. But uh, as some of you know, hopefully all of you know, Rick has a his own talk show, Good Morning Hamilton, that starts at uh, at a crazy hour of the morning that requires him <laughs> to be up at like 3. And so he has passed the torch just for tonight because it's a late game to Dave Woodard. However, you heard Rick here say that if it turns out the Ticats lose, he may not be able to contain himself and maybe in studio tonight, so we'll we'll see how you do. You, you might want to go to sleep before the game is over just to prevent yourself from being tempted. Yeah, we shall see. Let, let's hope it's forty to three at halftime for the Ticats, and I won't have any uh, you know any sense to uh, to hurdle into the radio station. Yeah, uh, and if all else fails, we have some soy sauce from Florida for you that uh, we were talking about Ooh. last hour. Oh yeah, no, no, you don't want this, Rick. It's laden with meth, but it might help keep you awake. So. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, listen for Dave Woodard tonight. And, uh, if you're calling in, uh, you know, be gentle with Dave. It's his first time. Did, did you, Rick, did you at least like take a bottle of champagne and smash it across his bow before launching him into the fifth quarter world? He, he actually hosted a show last year. So oh, okay. That. Yeah. We, we had him, you know, we had him christened last year and he's actually going to do a game in August, the BC game in August, because I'm going to be on the East coast uh, for the last couple of weeks of August. So he'll have the opportunity to talk about, uh, Ticats and Lions after that game. All right, so it's not his maiden voyage. So I take back what I was saying. Uh, Dave has no excuse to not be perfect tonight. So <laughs> if, if anything goes wrong, just lay into him when you call in and just tell him, Dave, this is not your first time. I expect better. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Rick Zamprin, thanks for doing this. Have a good night. You got it. Enjoy the game. That is uh, Rick. You can hear him tomorrow morning, 530 
on Good Morning Hamilton. And yeah, be nice to Dave. Dave's a good guy. He'll be, he'll be great. But tune in tonight after the game. Uh, have your say. I, you want the Ticats to win. If you're a Hamilton person, you're a Hamiltonian, you want the Ticats to win. If they don't, though, uh, I have a feeling this might be an active show. A lively show. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.